You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. This week is James Gunn. Rob, you know James Gunn? Yeah, I know James Gunn. You know, he directed Slither, Super, Guardians of the Galaxy 1, 2, 2, I'm in, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which he's writing right now. And uh, our interview doesn't start off great. James said that when we met, I was a close talker. But I'm not. You know that, Rob. Just admit it, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever thought that. No, in fact, it freaks me out. So I was like, just taken aback by this. I was like, James, you're wrong. So we start, I think the first four minutes is, is uh, me going, you're a fucking liar. Um, but uh, it was a really great conversation. Wasn't it fun to go out to? It was the first time we ever left my living room and went to Malibu. Uh, we're going to talk about his filthy Super 8 commercial, right? For pre-menstruated tampons that he made when he was really young. And he was a stupid, foolish kid with a bunch of his brothers. And uh, it's, it's funny. And I forced him to tell the story, and he didn't want to. And uh, it was fun. Uh, and how he learned about what sex was. Do you remember what he said? Um, he, he thought the penis was just used for birthing, I think. That it helped the baby come out. The penis helped the baby come out, is what he thought when he was younger. How he worked with Lloyd Kaufman from Trauma Films. How it all started there, sort of. Uh, he was a punk band. There's just so much to talk about. Let's get inside of James Gunn. I sound like I'm eating food, which I am. It's my point of view. You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. Yeah. But I've met your family. Yeah. And your you dad. Know, you know my dad well. Yeah, he Facebooks me. Yeah, he, you guys are Facebook buddies. We're friends. Yeah. I, I love hanging around with him. He's yeah. got an amazing energy. Yeah. First off, let me just say thank you for allowing me to be inside of you, James Gunn. James Francis Gunn. I never called you Francis, probably because well, you. I don't even know what your middle name is. Well, I appreciate that. What is it? Friends for quite some time. It's Owen. That? Owen, yeah. Should Maybe I have I, have, I have actually heard that. Should I have gotten rid of Rosenbaum and just had Michael Owen? I've always thought about that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I should have done that. <laughs> I wonder you would have been yeah. more successful today. James, how did we meet? This podcast would way more successful. A lot more hits than the, the 37 is getting now. We're, we're getting up there. We're not, I'm not a big celebrity. That's good. I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. Uh -huh. I finally got to, you know, you're the first one I had to come out to Malibu with because look, I know it's, it's fine though. I usually do difficult. in my living room. You're not a difficult person. I am. You're, you're no, very, I'm difficult. I think we're both difficult in many ways, but there's also good qualities about us, obviously. Uh -huh. Right? I'm sure. But I, I think that, you know. About I, me, there is. Yeah. You're a lot busier than I am. Yeah. I, could, I could probably reschedule my acupuncture and my therapy session right. to come to Malibu. Is that what you do in your spare time? Well, it's, it's become part of my life to go to therapy. You've gone to therapy in your life. I have. Yeah. And I, do you still go? Same therapist? I do. Do you do it by phone, FaceTime, or? Uh... Um, I, go in, I go in person. About, you know, once every three weeks or so. Three weeks. Is that enough? Yeah, I'm pretty fixed. <laughs> I'm pretty perfect. Really? <laughs> yeah, I've got no more demons. How did, how did we meet? We, we talk about this ad nauseum, but how, how did it happen? Because I always say a plane and you say no. The first time we met was at the premiere for Without a Paddle. Right. Because I was friends with Matt Lillard and Seth Green. And I was friends with Dak Shepard, right. And uh, we went to that and, uh, and I saw you and I, I told you you were a... Uh, I really liked you on Smallville, and then you stood too close to me while you were talking to me, and uh, I was creeped out, and then we didn't talk again until you so said right me, now. Until right now. I avoided you. You weren't and then, creeped out by me. 
You still you you're a close talker. Mm-hmm. You, you're a close That's talker. That's not true. You are. That is. That, that was my true. first impression of you. Is that you're well, a close talker? I, I'm actually. I hate those people who get too close. So maybe uh, you're a close talker. Well, that was inadvertent because I am not. I do not. I talk about this. Yeah. How I really I get weird and people are close to me. I actually try to be far, maybe maybe back in the day. I think whatever your boundaries are for those those parameters between people having conversations are are much closer than my boundaries. You're telling me at least that one time. Yes. You can't say that I've I don't think you would hang out with me for all these years if I talked that close to you. Close. Well, I mean, I know you now, so I'm not as uncomfortable when you're so close to me. But I didn't know you that night. Now you, now you're. I'm just used to you being so close I'm when you talk. Feeling you are close. You. That's you, absolutely you are, not true. You, it, I, it I am uncomfortable around people. You don't know this. <laughs> it's a, you think I have this confidence. I don't always. I didn't say you have a confidence. Well, I wait, you now, talk too close. Now I'm I not confident. You, what? What do you mean? I don't have this confidence. I didn't say you did, did or didn't. I didn't say anything about your confidence. I just said you stand closer to people than I. You do. You know what? I was thinking. You know I what? stand. I stand. I have a healthy boundary that I like. I to was have. thinking before this interview. I was like, you know, there's going to be some things James might want me to edit. But now there's some things I want to edit. Yeah, well, I don't want people there's to think no, I'm a close talker because I'm not. Talker. You Rob, are. Don't side with him because he's a big time Hollywood director. You fucking tell the truth. Do I always talk close to you? I always try to get away from you. Um, you're normally in the bathroom talking through the door. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means either. Um, yeah. So anyway, that was my first impression. Of okay. Then what? Then, then what? But then we met again. On the plane, I was flying home from Slither mm-hmm. during some break or something from Vancouver. You were flying home from Smallville. Right. And we sat next to each other. And uh, How and then close we had were a, we? That was better because we had an armrest between us, so you didn't have to cuddle me too much. Did I have fresh breath when we first met if I was that close to you? Yeah, your breath was fine. Awesome. It wasn't a uh, that's, breath, that's a it wasn't a breath problem. Thank God. Thank a, you. a boundaries problem. <laughs> the, the, uh, the second time we... we uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh this is good this so, is not good for me this that's is, good so the second time was on the plane and we talked about horror movies which was cool yeah we love horror and then movies. i found out you had a really shitty taste in music and then that was uh yeah that's sort of like so it's it's amazing how we become close friends because i i was too close to you when i was talking and uh you don't like my my, my music for the most part well then i got divorced and i was like i don't have any single friends right and there i was so i'm like there's this Rosenbaum guy. He's the only guy in my phone that's <laughs> this not close married, talker. That is his close talking, terrible taste in music, dude. Maybe we'll go to a, a you know a Hooters concert together, <laughs> pick up women. <laughs> Hooters. Yeah, that's the band <laughs> that you like. No, I don't yeah. like the Hooters. I don't okay. even know who they are. Maybe we'll go to a Mike and the Mechanics there concert. There you go. <laughs> it's a, there you see, go. Late, late, late era Genesis. Let's go. So we started. We hit it off. We had a lunch in Culver City. We loved horror movies. We had a connection. I liked you. I genuinely liked you. You were yeah. just a good guy. Yeah, I you liked you. You seemed like you. one of the good ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah like and we hit it off. Soon after, you said, hey, I'm doing this thing called PG Porn. Dude, that was a long time out. We uh, hung out a lot uh, before uh, PG yeah, we Porn. Did, we did. What? I don't even know what I'm talking about. What? I don't, I don't, we became friends memory. long before PG Porn. I mean, we hung out a lot for okay, a long so time. So obviously, I don't remember a lot of, this, of these things that you're I saying. Burped. You burped. And he, before this, he said one condition, you I fart tweeted, and you're out. And I tweeted that you fart one time and, and you're out of here. And then I asked him if he was serious. And, he and goes, I said I was totally serious. 100% serious. You yeah. rip ass and you're out. Or I'm out. You said you're out. Yeah, I don't even like the using the phrase rip ass is awful close to <laughs> just farting. 
<laughs> I like how you that you want to go. Okay, go. All right. So we met. We started hanging out. We started doing. Uh, I came to your house. You came to mine. We started doing a lot of movie nights or uh, uh, movie nights or game nights. We played this game called Mafia. Mafia. That was the thing for a while. Yeah, it was a big thing. I used to play Mafia probably three, four, five times a week. And we play at my house, your house a lot. I played Kyle Newman's. Right. Elizabeth Banks. Yep. There was like a lot of people that had Mafia games back then. Yeah. And Nathan Fillion. Yeah, it was a thing to do. It wasn't, yep. invited, wasn't invited to that one. But um, no, I recall. There was like the, the cool people I went, yeah. which I always went by myself. Yeah, you don't want to be. And then right. went to like your house. You don't want to bring close talker to those people's houses. God forbid I embarrass you by talking too close right. to one of your I don't want you standing too close to Elizabeth Banks and breaking right. her out. <laughs> So disgusting her where here's what I found out about you at an early stage in our relationship. Compassionate can be intense, thinks a lot, always thinking. Mm -hmm. And I remember playing um, mafia with you one time and it, we got so worked up between your brother, Sean Yarvo, who directed the Inferno yeah. uh, video for Guardians. Yeah, David Yaravesky. He's one of our best friends. One of my best friends, and he's, yeah, he's doing that. We're producing another horror movie that he's directing. Oh, which well. I love. I love. Um, and I was Mafia. Yeah. Look up the game, whatever. It doesn't matter. But I remember I you, you got so mad. Do you remember this? I'm always getting mad at you. No, but this was like, this was rage in your eyes and you looked at me and i go i don't know what you guys are talking about i'm not mafia rune and you looked at me and you go you're a fucking terrible actor oh that that hurt your feelings i remember it that. did it just i was taken aback for a second <laughs> and i looked at you and, and then you go do you remember what you said i probably said like i mean in this game yeah yeah something you go, like that. of right. course i don't think you're a, a terrible actor right i felt bad and, but yeah. but I didn't. I wasn't really offended. I think you you were upset. Well, I didn't want to be saying that you're a terrible actor. I don't think you're. I think you're a very you know you're a very mediocre actor. Thank you. Thank I you. think that no. I think you're a very good actor. I think that uh, you know I didn't want it to be mean. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Somebody did that one time at one of your games. I remember who it was. Somebody was really mean, and to I me? can't. I can't say who it was. No, they were mean to a girl that was playing. What they say? Don't say who it was though. They said I know good acting and I know bad acting. And you are a bad actor, and the, and the person was an actress, but not a successful. Okay, so it wasn't not a successful actress, I don't think. But it so wasn't chauvinistic. Maybe it was, was more kind of, of just like know. if you said it to a guy or a girl, it was more just like he, it was really mean. It was yes. You it went seemed too to be far. specifically I picking about her uh, apart her talent. Yeah, and he's a nice guy. I like him, but it just uh, that went, was a, that game it pushed was a little certain too far. buttons. I've seen your well, brother flip out. I'm very competitive. Very competitive. Yeah, I'm very and competitive. yeah, you're yeah. so look. Part of that competitiveness probably stems from, from childhood, from growing up with, what, three, four brothers and a sister? Uh, four brothers and a sister, yeah. Right. Within and, seven years. And we're, yeah, but I don't know if that's, I don't know. I'm just competitive. I was always competitive. I don't, my, you know, the weird thing is with my, my family, like my family's all in the entertainment industry. I don't feel competitive with them. Well, that's because you got the biggest movies in the history. I'm kidding. But that's, I mean, someone could argue that. It's like I'm not competitive with them. I've <laughs> I made the top. Yeah, but my brother Sean is more famous than no. me. You know, he's like more recognizable. Sure, than I am. sure, sure. So it's like my brother Patrick has a hell of a lot of money, and my you know my he ran artisan. My, right? my brother Matt has a, a, a ten Emmy Award nomination. Produces Bill Maher, right? And uh, my brother Brian, um, he's got some nice kids. <laughs> he's got some beautiful kids. <laughs> he's really talented. They're all amazing. People. He's, I'm doing Starsky and Hutch with Brian. 
over at uh, Amazon. But that now Starsky and Hutch is your new show that you are you created. Uh, well, you didn't create Starsky and Hutch, but the new idea. And I the, created them. Yeah, and you created Starsky and Hutch. Went back into a time before. machine and I created. But, but uh, so that's happening. That's in the developmental stages. All right, so let's go back. So you say there's no competitiveness. Growing up in this household, now we're, your dad, Jimmy, who I love. Now you don't let a lot of people call you Jimmy. I call you Jimmy. But how many other people call you Jimmy? Really, my family calls me Jimmy. But, you know, my, my, my best friend, Stevie Blackheart, calls me James. Can my, you quickly my, do, just for me, because no one else will get it except you, if you're listening, can you please do a Stevie Blackheart impression? This is exactly uh, how he sounds. He's, uh, <laughs> he talks kind of like this, and he's really, uh, <laughs> everything is very serious with Stevie, but he likes to talk a lot about, uh, <laughs> like, how an air conditioner works, like, if you need to know that. Anyway, that's Stevie. Um... <laughs> <laughs> but he's in he's in Guardians. Uh, he's one, one of the, two. He plays he's, two different roles. He plays one role in Guardians One and one role in Guardians he's Two. Belco experiment. He's been in everything. That's another thing. Well, which I want to get to. You put your Tromeo friends in Juliet, movies. That's where I met yes, him you guys have known for friend. years. But so growing up, your dad wasn't. You guys always didn't see eye to eye. Yes. What you did see eye to eye. We always saw eye to eye. We always. That's a lot. <laughs> we never I know it's not true. That's why I'm bringing it up. Yeah. No. So, no. No. Well, no. Things weren't always easy. Well, listen. I want to start uh, from the my beginning. My dad doesn't. My dad's cool. Like he's my dad's a recovering alcoholic, and he was not a recovering alcoholic when I was a kid. So uh, things were um, much more dysfunctional in my family as a child than they were when I got into my you know twenties. Uh, what was it like growing up? Like you know, in, in high school, were you drinking then? Yeah, doing drugs then. Yep. How old were you when you first started doing that? Drinking? Yeah, twelve. And who are you drinking with? My friends. You know, myself. Right. And what were you in? What kind of scenes were you in back then? Were you in the, the punk I was scene? A yeah, I was a little right. punk. Yeah. And you were already playing music at that point? Yeah, I started playing music, I guess, when I was 15 or so. But it got more serious as time went on. And what sort of problems would you know arise at the house? You'd come home late. You didn't see eye to eye. He was, he was drinking. Were you the one that was more combative with him than, than, than the, uh, the other family members? Uh, I think I only ask you this because I come from a lot of dysfunction. I think my my my, about my brother Patrick and I were and my sister Beth were all pretty combative with my with my father. I guess people Pat, think Patrick's quieter now, but but you know I'm a loud person, combative in general. Who were you in, in terms of the family members? Did you feel like you were the definitely the the, the worst temper, or you'd flip out more than the other guys? No, did? my brother Brian has a worse temper. He yeah. does. Did you guys get along growing up? Yeah, you did, but you've probably fought too. Yeah. And so what was it like living with all these kids in the same house? I mean, w w did you do a lot of things together? Was it like a really close family? Well, I think that I think the the big when you had come from a, a house with six kids in 7 years and your dad is out. My dad was out working a lot. My dad wasn't around very much. He's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. And uh my mom was always doing, you know, she's a neat freak and was cleaning and so I think the main one of the, the 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 things about my family life that was so different was that we were off left to our own devices quite a bit. So I think a lot of people judge their early years by basing it on their relationships to their parents. But my relationship to my parents wasn't that present in my life. It was my relationship to my peers, my brothers and my sister that were the really strong relationships that were the formative relationships that were there when I was a baby and a child. And, uh, and likewise, even the kids in my neighborhood, you know, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri in the seventies and Manchester, eighties in, in Manchester, Missouri, when, when things, you know, we knew that there were 
for instance, child molesters and things like that. But we didn't, you know, we were told a child molester to me as a kid was somebody who was in a white, dirty van offering me candy to get into it. Right. So I knew to avoid that situation. I didn't know to avoid the priest at school, you know, which was going on during that time. Right. But the, the thing is, we I had full freedom. I was four years old, and I would walk a mile radius around my house, yeah. going into people's homes and hanging out with neighbors, yeah. and like you know, hanging out with older teenagers and being a little brat, and you know, listening to their. You know, I remember you know, getting turned on to Kiss when I was very young because you know this older neighbor, this like young, you know, probably he was probably a preteen or something, but he was I don't know twelve, but he seemed like he was you know older to me. Turned me on to Kiss. You know, and and listening to Kiss records in that kid's basement and yeah. stuff, and there was nothing weird going on. But there's something cool about yeah. what people don't understand about the the '80s, in like the late '70s or '80s, where there wasn't instant gratification. There wasn't like you know we weren't so technologically advanced, and if you had to find you know you found out information via like you know word of mouth. Yeah. And if you, it, there was no rotten tomatoes. So it was one of those things where it was like, Oh, this movie's playing and everybody saw yeah. this or you rented yeah. this movie. And it was just yeah. a different time period. Fewer choices, but it made, when you did find something awesome, it made it all, you know, all that much more exciting, you know, for instance, women playboys. When was your first, did, did you discover playboy at a young age? I was, um, I was very young. Uh, I, I remember, first of all, I remember, my f- learning about what sex was my my parents had to have a talk with me because i i i learned started using the word fuck when i was like in first grade or something and uh my friend danny said to me um do you know what fucking is and i said yeah i don't know i'm probably printing it off like i did and he said fucking is when the dad puts the penis in the vagina of the mom to help make the baby come out. And I acted like I knew what was going on. I said, yes, I know. I know. Yes. Yes. Um, Fucking. But today the doctor just uses his finger. And what I imagined somehow I knew how babies were born. And I imagined that there was some ancient ritual in which the man used his penis to stretch open the woman's vagina to help the baby come out. And then today doctors just use their fingers. And to, to tell you how much Danny knew, he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then now only the doctors use their fingers. So that was that was when I first heard about sex. And that same kid, like maybe a year later, brought pictures that he had supposedly found in the woods, which I kind of believe because they were sort of covered in dirt and torn up. And one of them was of a, just a picture of a man's <laughs> penis in a woman's butt. Like, that's what? all it was. That was like, that was my introduction to sex was anal. Anal. Yes, that was like the this first is sex. Thing. Yeah, I remember. I thinking at that age, like I remember, like that guy's gay. You know, and, you know, people are stupid, and it's the eighties, and nobody knows. And it, as a kid, I thought being gay. I know it sounds funny. Was just when two guys just bump their weenies, their weenie yeah. bumpers. They just put their penises together and bump. Well, that happens. Yeah, they just bump heads. But they we're, do that. They're weenie bumpers. Well, sort of. They, they, it's one of the things. It just they seems can like do. an odd thing to do. It doesn't seem that like it, it turns anyone on. Oh, look, bump. I if, could be all right. Like, I mean, hey, if I was, yeah. So what's kind of interesting to me is that your dad was a lawyer and then your uncles were all lawyers and you started getting into movies right. at a young age. You were like, yeah, like what movies were, what movies influenced you? Um, well, it's, I think that I really fell in love with movies around uh, Star Wars, first of all. 
I always loved movies. Like I loved Disney movies as a kid. Like, you know, when my mom would say, Hey, let's, let's go see, you know, whatever was being re-released that year, Pinocchio or Jungle Book or Cinderella or whatever, I would be so excited to go to the movies. Like that was great. Um, but when Star Wars came out, it, it definitely was, it stirred something more in me and I really started to fall in love with movies. That's when I learned what a director was, even more so around Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think. I, I started to understand what it was. And how old were you? Was. Eight, ten, ten. eleven. Right. Um, but it wasn't long after that, too, that there started being movies that I would see on VHS and on cable, which were movies like Friday the 13th and especially, I think, Night of the Living Dead. Which made me go, oh, maybe I could do that. And there were there were magazines back then, like Cinefantastic, Fangoria, Fangoria, but more like Cine- there were movies about filmmaking, like kids making movies, and that really turned me on. The idea of making my own films, and this is before you know you know video filming. It was pretty much VHS. I mean, it was uh, Super Eight. At right. that time, so I started making uh, Super Eight movies when I was eleven and twelve. But wasn't it really horror that sort of? Yeah, I was attracted to horror. Like I made, uh, you know, one of the the first things I ever shot was my my brother killing my other brother and eating his intestines, which I made out of Cairo syrup. And you know, I read about how to do it in the magazine. You know, like Cairo syrup and, and red food dye, and uh, it's a me- total mess. And 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 then you take uh, toilet paper to make it look like intestines or whatever. Do you remember when you were doing it? Did you already feel that? the power of like being behind the camera and saying, do this and torturing your brothers. Did no, you, no, did no. you ever torture I really them? did. Was it collaborative? Was it, it a was collab. I was. mean, it was kind of collaborative because I'm pretty much <laughs> like in charge, but like <laughs> it was definitely f- a group fun thing to do was to make a movie. And I did a nut, like my, my, my first real thing I remember doing was the stupidest thing in the world. It was called commercials, the art of the century. And it was just me and my friends making a bunch of commercials that were fake commercials and that were filthy, like they were filthy. Do you still have those? I do. Somewhere I still have. What was one? Give me the one that you could think of they could actually talk about. I can't. I can talk. I mean, I remember. (laughs) So embarrassing. You were a kid. What did you Uh, know? They're going to yell at you because you're 12? We made, it was like, we got these tampons, (laughs) or not tampons, uh, like maxi pads. Okay. Which I think we called tampons because we didn't know the difference. Who does? And we said they were pre-menstruated tampons. So we had like these bloody – this is so disgusting. We had like these <laughs> bloody uh, maxi pads that we had ketchup on or whatever. And we said now you, – you, oh, it's so stupid. It's embarrassing. <laughs> you were a kid. Like, yeah, it was 12. It's not like you made this um, yesterday. I was like – I said uh, – I said, you know – that it, you don't have to go through the, the pain of your monthly, monthly cycle. I'm sure I didn't say it like that. It was probably said in a much more stupid way. Uh, <laughs> now that we have these, like that somehow made it so that you didn't have to have your period. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, like in typical fashion, one of our maxi pads was actually a piece of Wonder Bread cut in the shape of that maxi pad with ketchup on it. And then we said, you know, and you can, they make great party snacks. And then he started <laughs> eating them. Oh, my God. And this was your idea? Yeah. At how old? 12. 
So now this all makes sense. We could just go straight. I to- wish I could. That's the only one I can remember. But that was when I, we thought that was so funny. I remember we couldn't like it is just merely us trying to get through the lines yeah. and then dying laughing. But you're doing this with your time. brothers. But you had the one sister, Beth. Did Beth, was she a part of any of this? Yeah, Beth would be a part of this, but this was not with my brothers. This was with my friends. This is with your friends. This was, this was my, too I personal. This, 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 was, this was with my, my little hooligan friends in, <laughs> in Manchester, Missouri. That were, All right, so. Pat, Greg, I know you guys are out there. Congratulations, like, guys. That's what, that's what we did. I wonder if those guys even remember that, Danny. So what happened then? You get you get this taste for like cinema and movies, and you have this like I get this is what I got to do. No, I think I just was always a very creative guy. So I, you know, I did a lot of different things. I I made movies, but I drew uh, comic strips and comic books, and and uh, and started playing music. Um, so I did a lot of different things. I, I didn't really care about what form my creativity took. How big I into just, comic books? How big? Yeah, how big were you? Uh, huge. You I mean, that collection? was the center of my life. I felt like comic books were the center of my life, and then I started to turn 12, 13 or so, and then movies were the center of my life. But um, comic books, and then, frankly, I turned 15, and then music was the center of my life. So I kind of had these like really hardcore passions for different times And what was life. it about comic books? During that time, I think I was a pretty lonely, outcast kid, and I just... I frankly started going my I was a problem child and I had to go to therapy and uh my parents sent me to therapy and I was in therapy and I'd have to go downstairs and wait for my mom to come pick me up and while I was waiting for my mom to come pick me up I would be in like the the little it was a straws or something it was like a uh you know uh, a place 7-Eleven right 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 so I was down there and I was waiting and there was comic books there, comic book racks. And I had always read comic books, always been into comic books. But for some reason, right then is when I started to really get into comic books in a big way. And what was your favorite ones that you really called? Well, I was always a big Spider-Man fan and a big Batman fan. So I, like those guys I loved consistently. But I loved a lot of other, you know. But Marvel and DC kind of went back and forth with because you love both of them. Yeah, I was more of a Marvel guy than a DC guy, but I read a lot of DC comics. I mean, I loved Batman. I loved Captain Marvel, the DC's Captain Marvel Shazam. I loved Metal Men. Where they were, that was my favorite comic for a long time. So there was a lot of different, uh, different Marvel and DC comics I liked. Inside of you is brought to you by Shopify. You know I use Shopify. You guys go on the, you know, inside of you online store and you see how easy it is to navigate for you. It's so amazing. Shopify, I can't think of anyone else that would do this uh, the right way like Shopify does. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. It's so easy to navigate. And when you want to add discounts, like for instance, I just had a discount where I put uh, Michael 15 and that was my discount code. How much of a percent? 15% off the total order. Easy. Adding products. It's so easy. You put a picture. You just upload a picture. You put a description. 
it, it, it does everything for you. And the analytics are so easy to use. Uh, this is the most selling product. Oh, I should get more of those. This is the least selling product. This is how much I made for this month compared to last year or last month. It's so easy to navigate. I feel like a pro and Shopify has really helped me do that. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash inside, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash inside now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash inside. Inside of you is brought to you by Neurohacker, Qualia Synaletic. Let me tell you something. If you haven't tried this, you are missing out. I just sent this to my mom. I have it. I use it. It's a product that I didn't, I, they weren't even my sponsor when I was using this. And I was like, wow, why do I have more focus or energy? Why do I feel better? Why do I feel different? It's because I take Qualia Synaletic, Neurohacker. Look, if someone would have told me, Ryan, that there are science-backed ingredients that could help me feel 15 years younger in a matter of months, I wouldn't have believed it. But uh, I tried Qualiacinolytic and the rest is history. As we age, everyone accumulates senescent cells in their body. Senescent cells may cause symptoms of aging such as aches and discomfort, slow workout recoveries, sluggish mental and physical energy associated with that middle-aged feeling. Also known as zombie cells, they're old and worn out and not serving a useful function for our health anymore, but they could be taking up space and nutrients from our healthy cells. Much like pruning the yellowing and dead leaves off a plant, Qualia Senoletic helps remove those worn out senescent cells to allow for the rest of them to thrive in the body. And... You just take it two days a month. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect of all the ingredients together. And Neurohacker Qualiacinolytic has a 100-day money-back guarantee. Oh, I have, I have more energy. Uh, I feel younger. Uh, I'm more productive. I will tell you that. I'm more productive. And uh, I feel like I have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more enthusiastic about my life. I definitely feel that. And uh, for me, the aches and pains are less lessened by this. So that is a real important thing for me. Help resist aging at the cellular level, folks. Try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com slash inside. Neurohacker, N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R. Neurohacker.com slash inside for up to $100 off and use code inside at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's neurohacker.com slash inside for an extra 15% off your purchase. So you're into comics, then you start getting into movies and music and you start to evolve and you're growing and you're kind yeah. of tasting a little bit of everything. You're probably starting to get into sex. How old were you when you first did it? Let me talk about my sex life now. I was uh, in high school. Okay. I was probably a little older. Yeah. I mean, close talking. I was, yeah, that's close talking. <laughs> I think I was 18. I was 18. 
Um, I, I was, you know, because I, I think I started being, I wasn't that popular with guys, but I was always comfortable, uh, more comfortable, I guess, especially when I started going through my, my, my early teen years, the dark stage with, with women, you know, oh. um, and I was a little punk rock kid and, and uh, new wave kid. And that was my crowd. And there was a lot of those girls out there. So I was never really, and I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't really into academics. Um, you got a lot of fights. I got into a lot of fights as a kid. Yeah. Those yeah. two teeth right there. Are they real? You know that they're fake. I know. That's why I asked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, remember that fight? Remember so the you're guy? Having, you're, you're, now you're taking questions that you already know the answer. Well, we're, to. we're there. I just want to, you know, I never really asked you this, but do you remember the guy's name who punched your teeth out? I don't know the guy's name. that He didn't punch my teeth out. He dragged happen? me down the street by a, a car. Oh, that's right. So I got dragged down the road by a car and had my teeth smashed out. My whole face got smashed open. That was, I was a little bit older. Right. It was 20s. So what made you decide I want to go to college? Well, in my family, people just went to college. It wasn't a situation where, you know, you had to make a choice on whether you go to college or not. That was just the thing that people in my family do. Well, it seems to me like it doesn't, even though it seems like that, you're into punk rock, you're rebelling, you're going to therapy, you're, you're, you need outlets, you're okay. doing harm. I wasn't going, I went to therapy for a small amount of time when I was like 12 even or 13. So you're a little bit different. So thinking maybe why did you go to college isn't completely. And that was not something that I thought outside of the box on, you know, okay. should I not go to college? I just simply, that was always going to happen. So you went to college where? I went to Loyola Marymount for uh, a year and got got let go of that. And um, what do you mean you and, got let go of that? Well, I was I was I had a lot of issues with uh, drugs and alcohol, and, uh, and you got I, caught. I got sober. I got caught. Yeah, and uh, I got sober, and then I went to uh, St. Louis University and, and finished my education there, which was really really great. I started to really get into school at that time, which I had never been into school before. And you're and, writing prose. Yeah, well, I went to school originally for film and then got sober and then I went back to school for psychology, but it was like like all my friends were who got sober when they were, you know, that age, that in their late teens. Right. Um start thinking about how they're they, you're going through therapy, you're going through treatment and then you think that oh, I'm going to do the same thing. Everybody, all my friends, I had like five friends who were sober, they were all in psychology. <laughs> but it wasn't until long after that I took a creative writing course while I was in school and uh and things really sort of just burst open for me. Right. There's a lot of this is it's a lot more complicated than this. I yeah. was playing music during this time. Cuz you dropped music out of school for a while to play for the, play the icons. Yes, right. And yeah. what was your favorite song, the most known Well, I played song. in two bands. I played in a band called The Icons and a, and a band called The Pods. People know The Icons more now because we recorded but The Pods were actually the more successful. Band Did you have a lot of people who toured around? Following you? Yeah, we were pretty successful for that type of thing. Were you yeah. making money? Uh, we were surviving. Now, yeah. You would go on tour. Yeah. You actually go to many cities across the country? Throughout the Midwest. Throughout the Midwest. Yeah. And you had a nice following. How did you, how did you feel being on stage? Were you very uh, confident? No. I liked recording and I loved writing songs. And occasionally I'd have a night in which I really loved playing. But the, the truth is, is uh, you know, when I'm directing, I feel like, I'm the best there is at this. Like there's nobody that can do what I do. That doesn't even necessarily mean I'm the best. It just means I can, do, nobody else have. can do what I can do. Right. 
when I was singing, I didn't really feel that. And it's true. I mean, I wasn't a great singer. I was a pretty good songwriter and a very good perform- very good performer, but I was not a great singer. But there are a lot wasn't. of guys that aren't great singers that are great writers. But I didn't want to be that person. Was there an ego thing or, or do you just think deep down, you go, hey, I don't want to explore this because I don't, I don't like the end game. I'm not going to be as successful as I know I should be or. I think that's part of it. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, I wasn't, you know. I played in one band that was very, very tight, and it, it got to be that it was very difficult playing that that music and going out night after night and doing the same thing. And we were starting to make a little bit of money, but it wasn't happening as quickly as I wanted it to happen, although it wasn't really that long. But when you're 19 years old, two years seems like a hell of a long time, right? Right. So I, I, it just was very difficult. And when that band broke up, that's when... I decided to think about what other options. Was I it hard? Was it hard saying, did you, did you, in your mind, cause I know you, did you think I'm a failure because I'm not exploring this more? I'm letting it go. Was it hard to let it go? Uh, no, I didn't completely let it go. I still was playing music after that, but the, the, but the band I was in was, was broken up and that was my, the guy I was playing it with decided to stop. So I didn't feel like I had really let it go. It was like somebody quit, the band was over. Right. So I was, I was on my own. I think for me, that was really the, the key to my career because at that point I said, you know, listen, I knew I wanted to be successful. I still wanted to be rich and famous and all those things, but I wanted to really take a look at what I was good at. What was I best at, you know? So I took that time to figure out what I was really good at, which is what I think college is for. And I think if more people looked at, at things like that, you'd, you'd have, you know, a little bit more efficiency in the world. You know, this is amazing that I'm having this conversation with you that we got here because I was going to go on another topic and what you just said, it's something that I've gone through that I still go through. And I just talked to my uncle yesterday about this, the exact thing that you just said, which is like, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I don't suck at any of them. I'm pretty good at this and I'm kind of good at that. He's like, you need to stop focusing on what you're good at or pretty good at and focus on what you're great at. And stop bullshitting around. And he said, the other things make them hobbies. He says, just focus on what you're great at or what you really can excel in and be the best at what you can be. And it's funny because I just heard that from him and now I'm hearing it from you. I didn't know that that moment in your life was going to be so important. Oh, it's really important. I think it's, you know, I think that people generally live in America, at least, with this follow your dreams um, theory of living. I don't think it's a hundred percent of a misleading way of, of living, but I do think that it needs to be explored a little bit more than it currently is because people have ideas about, I want to be a famous movie star and then they live their lives. They just want to be a famous movie star, but it's not really about the craft of acting. It's not about the way you're doing it. It's not even really about the amount of talent you have, but that's your dream. So you're going to follow it. I mean, at least if you love it, you love it. If you love acting and you don't just want to have this dream in your head of being a famous movie star, at least you love the process of it. But there's too many people out there that have dreams. They don't really love the process of attaining those dreams. Our lives are not the dreams. Our lives are the process of attaining those dreams. So if that's what you're living in moment to moment is the process of being alive, what is that that you love as opposed to this 
idea of something outside of yourself. You know, when I was a kid and I imagined myself being a famous rock star, I didn't really imagine like myself, like going through the process of learning how to sing and playing instruments and all this stuff. I imagine myself kind of from uh, an outside perspective of people looking at me and how cool I would look on stage. Well, I can never experience that unless I'm watching videos of myself. You know, I can't experience, I don't experience myself from the outside. I experience myself from the inside. And I think that follow your dreams too often has to do with people looking at themselves from the outside and not the interior of themselves. And it's the interior of ourselves that really make us strong and can make us better. How much do I owe you for this therapy session, James? <laughs> How am I 45 years old and just like, you know what it is? is I, I, I've talked about this before, but, but these podcasts become somehow becomes sort of like therapy or, 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 you know, an awakening for me in certain ways, a little bit. And for, for this conversation, this has opened up uh, a huge can of worms, which is, you know, an important time in my life where I'm 45 years old. It's like, I don't want to be 80 and go, man, why didn't you try this? Why don't you try stand up? Why don't you try music? Why don't you try that? Why are you scared? Why? And then I'm going balls out and saying, fuck it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to fail. I don't care. But then there's the other part where it's like, why'd you waste your time? on a lot of shit that you shouldn't have wasted your time on. So it's, it's getting through all that stuff. And what really, I guess what it really comes down to for me is like being happy, like everyone else to search for what makes you happy. If you could honestly do something that makes you happy and is rewarding and fulfilling, that's what you do. Yeah. And hopefully uh, you're good to, at to it. To some degree, but happy is too simple. I mean, it's is like, it? yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, there's a line in, in my movie super where Frank Darbo, the character played by, Rain Wilson says happy people are are arrogant. Like he thinks happiness is overrated. And I do to some happy. I don't know what happiness means. Like, how do you measure that? Like, what does that mean to me? Like the idea of fulfillment is much more powerful than the idea of happiness. Even the idea of joy is more powerful than happiness because the truth is to acquire, uh, fulfillment and to acquire joy. takes a lot of work, a lot of not happy, to get to those places. Um, and the idea of happiness somehow seems too slight to me. It seems it doesn't give my life much purpose. I, I want to be of use to other people and I want my life to mean something to, to, to the world around me. And I want this place to be better at the end of my life than it is right now. And those things don't always have a lot to do with happiness. I want to be fulfilled. I want to feel like what I'm doing is, is good. Getting a blowjob makes me happy. Sure. But does but, that... But hang that, on, hang that, on, hang on. Is that what life is all about? I mean, it's it's not. I don't know. The term doesn't really, you know, excite me that much. I guess in some ways I'm saying, yes, I want to be happy. But I, it's how do you get there? Well, I think I think if you could say, if you have the choice to do things that make you happy for even an hour or two hours or a connection with somebody or... That moments are happiness. It's not like people, yeah, it's a delusion to be happy all the time. No one's happy all the fucking time. Yeah. It's arrogance. I agree with that. Yeah, but also it's like they think, oh, I just want to be happy. Well, I, I don't know. What do you want to do? <laughs> How about I want to be happier than I am? All right. Maybe that's the goal. Yeah. I'm not saying me, the proverbial. Yeah. Well, the, the, it's interesting. And it makes perfect sense to me, what you just said. Yeah. All right. So you went to Columbia University. You decided to get your master's, right? Yep. And that you did drop out for a year and then you came back. Not to Columbia. Columbia. Where did you drop out? That was Loyola? Yeah. Between Loyola and, and St. Louis Shoe. And then you went how many years to Columbia for your master's? 
Two years. Two years to get your master's in what? Oh, what did I get my master's in? I got my master's in uh, creative writing and fiction. And so while I was in Columbia, though, is when I started Lloyd. working for Troma. That's Lloyd Kaufman. I, so I was going to be a novelist, and I, I was a novelist. I put out a novel. During that time at Columbia, um, I needed work. And um, uh, my brother knew someone. Which who, brother? Matt. Uh, Matt. Who was working at Cinemax at the time. Uh, Didn't Cinemax it, do Goodbye, Emmanuel, Emmanuel? Well, it's was that Cinemax? Skinemax showed those movies. <laughs> okay. And my brother was actually a guy who was in programming, and he programmed a lot of the whatever the, the Skinemax stuff was. I remember being nine and just seeing those. Yeah, it was great. Oh, I loved it. Oh, yeah. Lung, young Lady Chatterley's Lover was my favorite, um, <laughs> which I enjoyed. Do you, quite remember a bit song, a Do you remember that song, though? Do you remember that song? What? Goodbye. No, I don't Emmanuel. remember the song. I don't Emmanuel. Yeah. Bye. Should okay. get the MP3. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so while doing that, I went in for a uh, a meeting with Lloyd Kaufman, who ran Troma. How'd you get that? Through Matt? Uh, Matt's boss sent Lloyd my resume, and then I went in for a regular meeting. For Were you he nervous? Was, he was meeting with different people. Because you were a fan at this point, right? Well, I was maybe a little nervous, but I don't really get nervous about stuff like that so much. I mean, maybe I was nervous. I don't know. Really? You don't get nervous about meeting famous people or anything? That just You've never been like that? I was. Uh, there's a couple of people I've been a little bit starstruck by. Um, I met Stan Lee when I first moved to L.A., sure. and I was starstruck by him. Um, I was pretty starstruck by Sylvester Stallone. who I played I've, it off on set. It's not, again, it's not that... Just a little tiny starstruck. I still am, but I mean, we've become, uh, Sly and I have become very good friends. Right. What does he do? Does he call you like, hey, Jimmy, how you doing? He sends me all sorts of videos and Hey, check out this and, video. Amazing. Look at this. Yeah. This we is hang me. Out. When I, we hang out. We smoke cigars together. Why don't you ever call me? Uh, because he, he expressly said he don't bring that Rosenbaum guy around. Close talker. He said close talker. Yeah. Because he uh, said on set to me, he said, he goes, yeah, you know what? You and Jimmy should come over. Smoke some cigars. Like, I don't smoke cigars. Maybe that's the reason, too. Yeah. I'm a yeah, bit of a pussy. Yeah, I, I smoked my first cigar with you back there. Yeah. In your house. Yeah. Okay, so you're with Lloyd Kaufman, and the meeting goes well. He says that's how it started. Well, I thought I was going to get a job, like, working on set as a PA or something, and instead he he found out that I was going to Columbia, which I think was very impressive to him. And he also found out that I was doing, uh, I was doing monologues at the time. So I was doing... Basically, I was performing in a lot of poetry slams, and he found that out. And what's, so, what's, what's a poetry slam? Well, it's a kind of performance, you know. I mean, it was for me. It wasn't even. It, there's a there's a guy by the name of Eric Bogosian who's on course, Billions yeah. today. Okay, did you ever see I'm, Sex, I met Drugs, with and him. Rock and Roll? Like, uh, no, but that he used to do these performance monologues, and so I started doing that. I was really into Eric Bogosian, so I started writing these monologues and doing these different characters. Right, and I was I did really well at it, and. Um, and because poetry slams were sort of the thing that were happening at the time, and I guess my monologues had some amount of poetry in some of them, I would do these monologues at poetry slams, which were like these competitions. And you started getting poets. popular at this? Yeah. People liked you a lot. Yeah. And did you, you, we, we skipped over a portion of your, your performing now. Well, I always forget about it. I mean, I always forget about that part of my life. But like, yeah, I was actually probably more successful at doing that than I was at playing music. Well, how hard is that for you to just start getting up because you hadn't really done a lot of acting, it was right? To it was so relieving to me because when I was playing with bands, I relied on all these other people to get things right. And it was always so incredibly ah, frustrating to yes. me. And suddenly I was, I was out doing something by myself, 
just straight performance. And I only had myself to rely on. So I could work as hard as I wanted. You know, when you're playing in bands, I'm a workaholic. I love to work all the time. And, you know, I, you can't get these guys to play as much as you want them to play. And for me, it was like I was able to just like do my thing and do it again and again and again, get it perfected and then go out on stage and perform. And everything was up to me. Everything was down to me. I wasn't singing. I was just performing. So that was more comfortable. And how long were these? These slams, the the, the performance yeah, pieces. The performance that when you get up and, and perform by yourself, how long would they be? A few minutes. A few minutes. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. That was. So a lot he was of fun. impressed by your resume. He was impressed that you went to Columbia. He was impressed by these. So he asked me, you know, maybe you should write one of our movies, and I said, "Whoa, that isn't really what I expected." Okay. It, the whole thing was sort of stupid too, because then I got paid one hundred and fifty dollars to write this movie, Tromeo and Juliet. But I went to Troma to get a stupid job. Like it wasn't like <laughs> I went there to like find my life or or my right. career or anything like that. I went for money, and so he hired me to write Tromeo and Juliet. I was still pretty excited about one hundred and fifty dollars. I could get my 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 name on an actual film that would be out there forever. So I made Tromeo and Juliet and. And I got a job at Troma after. And you were on set on the movie as well? Oh, yeah. I directed the actors. I choreographed the sex scenes. I did all of that stuff. That was, I, you know, from a very early moment, I saw that I could see this thing in my head. And I started taking over. I started becoming a director. And um, So that was a very important part of your life, to you know, be able to do this movie. And I and- found myself. I would come home, you know, my girlfriend at the time would say that, you know, you, you seem like yourself for the first time. I came home so alive from set every day. I'm like, this is, I felt like I was born to do this. Like, this is what I was meant to do. I'd been searching for a long time. I had been open for a long time and I had found the thing that I was the very best at in the world along with writing, but they're kind of the same thing to me. I mean, making movies is it's storytelling. So directing is just the final draft of the screenplay. But it was it was a great it was a great time for me. And when was it time for you to leave and do your own thing? Was that when you wrote specials? The specials? Uh, I was at Troma um, as a the head of production, um, and we we had t- a bunch of TV stuff we did during that time that I was shooting like nonstop shooting stuff, which was great experience because I shot you know hundreds of hours of material edited hundreds of hours of material. Well, not edited, but many, many hours of material. Um, And then Lloyd hired me to write his book. Right. um, Which is something like... (laughs) How I Learned the Toxic Adventure or something? Yeah, everything I know about filmmaking I learned from the Toxic Adventure. Which is, if you haven't seen it, it's it's a cult, absolute classic. And my title was Sex and Drugs and Toxic Waste, which I like better. Uh, So anyway... He hired me to write that. I got uh, some money for that. And so at that time, I'm like, I'm going to take this money. I'm going to quit trauma and I'm going to go start writing screenplays, which I'd been writing all along anyway, more serious. And one of them was the specials? One or? of them was a screenplay called The Specials. Was Lloyd pissed off when you left or he understood? Uh, he's He was he really understood. He was very sweet towards me. And, and uh, um, you know, Lloyd has treated me for, uh, for the – most of my career, like uh, a son, really. And uh, he was very, very sweet to me about it. Uh, I think that, you know, it sucked, but there's a, people come to trauma and then leave. That's the way things happen when you don't pay people hardly any money. $150. That was a, was a good price for her. I was getting paid a weekly wage by that time. So I was getting, I was getting paid right. fine. Um, 
So then you start writing and you I wrote this screenplay called well I wrote the screen, screenplay called The Specials which um, Rob Lowe Jamie I started Kennedy. giving to everybody right. and Jamie Kennedy got the script and Jamie Kennedy fell in love with the script and then I got a manager off of that I got an agent off of that I got the movie made off of that I acted in the movie with my brother Sean and Rob Lowe and Jamie Kennedy and Thomas Aiden Church uh, and uh, and we had a, 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 a fun time doing that and you know the movie is was a mixed results why is that um, were, were you not happy with how it came out mm, no no I mean it's like a lot of people love the movie still I got uh, somebody tweeted at me this morning about how they still think it's the funniest superhero movie what was your problem with it um, it, it isn't it didn't really it has some of what was in the script, but it doesn't have the whole thing. The execution. The execution of it, yeah. That's it's probably... a little stilted. So then you... But listen, I don't like any of the movies I wrote and didn't direct, really. You know, I mean, I like all, I like some of them much more than others, you Because know? you want that control to translate the writing into what your well, vision is. Well, I just is. see what I see in my head while I'm writing. Right, it's, it's hard then, to like anything. Yeah, I mean, it's right. it's... You know, sometimes you're really lucky like you are with, you know, like I was with Dawn of the Dead, which uh, Zack Snyder directed. He did a great job. The movie was uh, in a lot of ways very different from what I had written. There was a lot more, I think, drama and and stuff in the draft. It's one of my favorites. I've told you this before many times. It's one of my – I I think, first of all, there's so many – uh, remakes in Hollywood and you know they people they always say people run out of ideas and this yeah. and it was one of those things where you go wow this is yeah this competes with the first one yeah and I just I thought in the the writing and the comedy together and the horror of it all yeah was just made the perfect yeah movie well like me. I said I, th- I think that Zach did a great job and he brought something different to it because he's a visionary and he brought his own yeah. thing to it so in that case I was a little bit happier with it because it was its own thing Right. Um, but in other cases, it just seems like a milky, a much milkier version of what the script was. And that's yeah. how I felt about it. Did you ask specials. to direct it? Were you like, I want to direct this. Let me direct no, it. No, they actually, no. At that point, you, you didn't have that control. That's right. I of. did have that control. You're looking at, so what happened? I just chose not to direct it. You just didn't want to direct that. Was there a reason for it? I was very poor. I was very in debt. And I had moved to Los Angeles, and suddenly I was getting offered a lot of money to write studio films. Right. And also, I had just broken up from a sort of dead-end long-term relationship in which I wasn't very fulfilled. And I was in Hollywood with women and having fun for the first time in my life. And I think that those things... Were you you a little uh, preoccupied with other things, too? Were you... Was it a happy time for you then? Were you doing very? Some- that was one of the happiest times of my life. And why is that? Because I think that I had been in New York working like a maniac for six years, like doing nothing but working day and night, night and day, work, 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 trying to create this thing for myself. And suddenly the doors sort of flooded open when I wrote the specials. I got a great agent, a great manager, a great lawyer. I had the whole package and I started, you know, I was out here. My two brothers were here with me. So me and Brian and Sean were together. We were hanging out with Jamie Kennedy and Judy Greer. That was sort of our- You lived with Jamie. I lived with Jamie. That was our little group of people. And we were just really happy. It was- you know, I was in New York. It was beautiful, Los Angeles, and uh, had some space around me. It was really a, a fun, fun time for me, and uh, and and starting to get paid for being creative, like in a real way, not in a way of like making. You know, what was your first big paycheck? How much was it? 
Well, I, uh, Joss Whedon hired me to write a pilot script, and I think that was seventy-five grand. So, and what year was this? Nineteen ninety-eight, I think. Which was a lot of money. Yeah, it's probably one hundred fifty. Yeah, in that same year, I got hired to write Spy vs. Spy right after that, right. and that was for significantly more money. So. Those were my first two big paychecks. I think at first with the specials, I didn't think that they would let me direct it. And as we started going down that road, suddenly it became apparent to me that they would let me direct it. But by that time, there were other things. You're like, I don't know if I want to direct this now. Part of it, and I think part of it was we had already hired a director. and, and And maybe also, do you think there's part of it where you're like, I'm growing as a writer. I'm getting better and better at writing screenplays. And maybe the one that I end up directing is going to be better. Did you think anything like that or you, you didn't, you weren't worried about that? Yeah. I might've been a little afraid if I was able to do it yet or not. I might've been a little afraid of how well I was going to be able to do. I don't think it was a matter of finding a better screenplay, but I think it could have been, had a little bit to do with how much confidence I had in my own abilities. Right. Did you fight with that a lot? Like when you moved out to Hollywood in terms of like, now you got this manager, now you got this agent, now you get, you're starting to get work, now you're meeting all these famous people and you're getting involved. Did, was it, did you ever doubt yourself? Were there times where you're like, am I good enough to be here? When are they going to catch on that I'm really not as good as they think I am? Do you ever have those thoughts? Because I've heard, I've had those thoughts. I hear other people have talked about that. Insecurities yeah. that sort of either make fear your tailwind or your head. Well, I have plenty of insecurities. Uh, I think my insecurities, it's not that I have no insecurities when it comes to my, my job. Um, I do, um, but my insecurities probably manifest themselves greater in other ways and relationships. You know, I'm much more confident in my work life than I am in my personal life. That's much of a scarier thing to me. I'm much more confident being fully myself and being vulnerable with my work than I am in a, a relationship. Like that's a very clear uh, disparity in my life that I've tried to work on and, and get better at. Do you think... Because you were married to Jenna, mm-hmm. Jenna Fisher. Do you think that was part of it? Because it was, uh, I mean, how old were you when you were married? I was in my early 30s. You know, early 30s. 30s, yeah. Were you one of those my guys 30s. that thought you were going to get married one day and have a family like yours? And, and uh, I mean, is, were those? Yeah. Th- you did. Yeah, I always thought I would get married and then have kids and do all that stuff. And where was it? It, it, it just didn't work out. A lot of times it just doesn't work out. With Jenna? Yeah. Because um, I think you're friends now. You've been friends. Yeah, I'm very close friends with Jenna. Yeah, like, we're it very, seemed very almost friends. immediate. It seemed like... It was. It was... Uh, listen, I think that Jen and I worked on our marriage for a long time, and uh, we, we did our best. I think at the end of the day, we were much better friends than we were marriage partners. And I think that we weren't that good at being married to each other, but we were very good at getting divorced and being loving towards each other in that process. And uh, And we're very close friends. She's like my sister today. So we, uh, yeah, I don't know. What's the question around that? I just was kind of just seeing, on. seeing where it went. Come on. What's going on? Is there a question? There's one of the questions. Just why I want to know, you know, why things don't work out. And I think it's a rarity when someone, like I'm, I'm friends with girlfriend, girls that I've dated because I'm not a mean person. I, I think when I date someone, I, I'm very, you know, there's insecurities and there's th- things about myself that I can't stand and I'm very, I get even more and more open about it. And if it doesn't work out, I don't think that, you know, it depends how hard it is for you know, whoever does the breaking up, whoever is getting broken up with. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I tend to be friends. Like my friend just had a baby and she's married and he's a great guy and it's, it's yeah. easy and it's no, great. No, I'm, I'm, I'm friendly with most of my exes. Not all of them. Most of them. Sure. Sure. I won't go there at all. Uh, so what, what was next? Scooby-Doo's. How, how did that all happen? 
Well, I wrote a screenplay for Spy vs. Spy and Lorenzo de Bonaventura, who was the head of Warner Brothers production at the time, uh, really liked that screenplay. Um, and uh, they didn't never made it, but he did then pursue me to write the Scooby-Doo movie. Um, and so I agreed and I wrote it and then I wrote the second one. Was that the first time you ever felt real pressure because you were now dealing with a studio for the most part? Yeah, I never again, I don't really get too pressured about stuff, but I it was definitely the first time I had to juggle a lot of different people's desires. That was very difficult, you know, because I'm the screenwriter, but I'm just a screenwriter. And then there's a director and actors and producers and a studio, and they all have different opinions about what that right. movie's supposed to be. And I, my job becomes not after a certain point, which is the, the lesson I learned on that first Scooby-Doo movie was it seemed like my job after a certain point didn't have anything to do with writing a good story, didn't have anything to do with me being happy with what I had do, was doing. It had to do with me making all, this person happy and this person happy and this person happy and this person happy. So I was living a very external reality while I was putting this puzzle together so that everybody was happy and the movie would get made. Um, did you feel like you were losing control? Not losing control. But I did. I, I had no control. And that's something you can't deal with. I can deal with it, but it was not the, the it was not the you know the the ultimate ex, you know experience of what I wanted to be having. You know, there are worse things in life than being a high paid screenwriter. Well, I'm not saying you movie that gets made, but sure, yeah, I don't like being a, it, it, for me fulfillment as an artist. Being a screenwriter is zero. Now, if I write a screenplay and then I go and give it to somebody, it's kind of fun, like I did with the Belco experiment Big, yeah. last year. But in general, I wouldn't want to be just a screenwriter. Like That no. would not appeal to me. It's a very right. difficult job in Hollywood because it's a very artistic pursuit in which the art is not the screenplay. It's a movie based on that screenplay. So it's not really fulfilling to me. What would you say to like young filmmakers? Because I don't think you get that that control that you have now, even when there's. I think you have the most control probably you've ever had. Yeah. Where now they just have they I've trust you. I've been pretty you. lucky. I've had pretty much control on most things I've done. I mean, so on the movies I've directed, I've pretty much been able to make the exactly the movie I've wanted to make. Um, Slither, Super, Yes. You know, they asked me to cut two things out of Slither. No big deal. Uh, super total control guardians. There was a little bit of muddledness at the, the development stage. Sure. But then once we made the movie, it was, was cool for me. And then guardians two total. So um, it's, I've, I've been very, very fortunate in that respect as a director. I've been fortunate. I think there's a lot of directors that probably feel a little bit like what I felt like as a screenwriter, but that fortunately hasn't been my experience. I've right. been able to, uh, maintain control of the products. And I, Slither, that's when you met Rooker. Yeah, I met I met Michael Rooker when he was auditioning for the movie Slither. And you were a big fan of his. I was a big fan of his. I, I always thought he was a vastly underrated actor. As did I. Um, and uh, always wanted to put him in. I wrote a, a, a screenplay called Full Tilt many years ago, action movie, in which I wanted Rooker to play the lead. Um and I, it, funnily enough, I wanted it to be Michael Rooker in one of the main leads and Sylvester Stallone in the other. <laughs> who had both well, they a did chance to be friend and, 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 uh, and, right. and work with. 
Um, but yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's where Rooker and I started our, you know, and I thought I was so, thought I was so lucky and excited to meet him. And then he ended up being Michael Rooker and being a part of my life. And which is crazy. Now it's a terrible <laughs> tragedy. Now he is the cross I bear. Every I, day. I want you to know that I just used your bathroom and I wiped my ass with Michael Rooker toilet paper. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah. It was in there. I have Michael Rooker toilet paper in every bathroom in the house. So you wipe your ass with his face every day. Well, it's, it's really low-quality toilet paper, so it's more for guests <laughs> than it is for, for actual people whose anuses I care about. Well, thank you. I, I, I approved of it. It was gentle. So you met Rooker. You fell in love with him. There was just something about him. What? Did you like his, just his work ethic and how he responded to you and just the way you guys connected? Because like, when you meet Rooker, if people don't know him— you go like, this is a crazy, intense guy. Yeah, he's, he's a maniac. He's a maniac. I, I, I've always had a I sort of love of maniacs. I mean, there's a lot of things about Lloyd Kaufman that's a maniac. There's a lot of sure. things about Rooker that's a maniac. You know, I had a, a friend when I was a, a kid named Wayne St. Wayne who was a professional wrestler slash, you know, uh, yeah. painter, incredibly talented guy. He was my good friend. I, I love these these oddball maniacs that are out there. I, I think there's so much... Uh, is there something so about, fun about that? Is there something about you that maybe wants to like? I'm gonna, I'm going to. I'm not, for lack of a better word, like control this guy. But I'm gonna get him. I'm gonna. He's so all over, all over the place. No, I just and think so, there's probably a part of me that's like that, and so I can relate to those people. Uh, you know, I relate to a lot to people who have anxiety issues. I'm able to deal with actors who have anxiety issues, which is a lot of them, because I can relate to that. Right. You know, I'm. I, I can relate to people uh, that may. Oddballs of all stripes, really, I think is the thing that is is where I feel like I feel. Do you think I'm an oddball at all? Yeah, for sure. Thank Absolutely. You. I really appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, Rotten Tomatoes said Slither was 50 best ever reviewed horror movies. Or it was, right? So yeah. how'd that make you feel? Good. It saved my life. It was like because Slither came out and because it made it, no money in right. the box office, but it was a huge critical success. And so in a big that cult. really that, that kept my name alive as a director. Um, I remember running around with you and just like seeing like screenings of it like years later. Yeah. Just, like, still. You know, still. People still, love the movie. Yeah. 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 Well, I say Slither's more popular now than it ever was. I mean, every Halloween, it seems to get more and more and more popular. And the Blu-ray was just put out finally by Screen yeah, Factory. It's a great addition. People go go buy it now so on then, Amazon. You start doing a bunch of shit. Not shit. Just a bunch of stuff. You, you, were, you, were, you hosted Scream Queens on VH1. You yeah. were doing... We did... Now I could say James Gunn's PG porn. Right. Where did that idea even come from? I, I don't remember. It came you, from my my brother. Uh, what is PG Sean. porn? Just to tell you know, what is it? Sum it up in like a PG porn is a web series. It's a, it's a it's a show for people who uh, love everything about pornography except for the sex. Except for the sex. And so it's uh, plays like the little skits in between. Right. They're little fun vignettes or whatever little Vignette, scenes and, the, the, and it, the acting scenes. And every right. episode has a different mainstream actor and a different uh, porn actor. And, and who was I with? I was PG. I was. You were, it was you were penis. with Belladonna. I was Charlie Brown. I was with Belladonna. Nathan, my Fillion friend Michelle, was, who's a wonderful, like honestly, just like one of the the sweetest, great to work with, nicest people in the world. Not doing porn anymore right. at all, uh, but she's a great person. And um, and you put all your friends in it. Nathan was in it. Uh, Nathan Tudyk. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Craig, bro- Robinson, Craig Robinson. Brother Sean. You know, uh, a lot of people. I love guys like you, not because we're friends, but you always find a way to put your friends in stuff. Even yeah, like the early stuff. You know, we do PG porn. I was yeah. like, you know, you yeah. time, anytime you ask me to do something, I was always like, of course, whatever, yeah. let's do it. PG well, porn. I'm let's... a pretty loyal person. I've had, I've had, again, I've had the same agent, the same manager, and the same yeah. lawyer 
my entire career. You know, I've had the same best friend for the past, you know, 20 years. There are people who I end up not being friends with anymore or not being whatever, but it's rare. Most people I, I stick around. I stick I stick with the same friend. Yeah, you are a lawyer. You're always the guy who, you know, and it's hard because now you live far, a little farther away, but it's not actually that far. But it is a little farther away where we used to always come to your house. Right. Yeah. And it would be the same group and it was just easy for yeah. everybody. Yeah, it was and, easy yeah, when I was in You know, and we have we yeah. have sushi at the same what was a sushi yeah. place we called we ate? Uh, Kazu. Kazu. And the great thing is you haven't changed a fucking bit. I mean zero. Yeah. And I can honestly say that. But what's changed is your career. Your career has gone from busy to Fuck. Very busy. That's 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 true. I'm that's just busy. the answer. So when I say James, what's up? And I don't hear right back from you, and I go, dude, and you go, Oh, dude. what's up? Sorry. Yeah. Dude. I know I fuck with you, but dude. you know I don't Yeah. You do. You get the dude, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, I don't think twice about it. Yeah. I know you're busy. I know how busy you are. I know one, you know, they'll be like, Hey, I'm having people at my house. Hey, I'm having the the white elephant party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, we're yeah. having dinner. It's a, it's it's hard to juggle. It's hard to have a personal life. How do you do that? How it do is. you have a personal life, a relationship, and a, and, a, and the career you do, and with family? How do you juggle that? And do you feel guilty a lot because you don't? Well, can't. I think it's about taking it's about taking full advantage of the time that you spend with someone. I think a lot of people are in relationships, and when they spend time with that person, you know. They're just kind of spending time with that person. But how can you make that time that you spend with that person quality time? Because if you make it quality time, then it, it's ten time, It's worth 10 times as much as non-quality time. A lot of people you know, spend a lot of time with their significant others, but they're not really talking and discussing and dealing with what's going on inside of themselves. It's not real intimacy. So for me, at least with the relationship part of it, which is something I've tried to work on, you know, um, because I haven't been that successful with relationships, as you well know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think you have uh, to your capacity. You've worked hard on them. I've worked hard on them. But, yeah, and, but, and, I've, I've, and I've dated a lot of really like nice people, like absolutely. good quality people and people that I still really love, but I, but they haven't lasted. Right. Um, and so uh, now I've been with, with Jen for two years and it's, it's been a really good experience. And um, But I'm, I'm working in a way that I, I've never worked before. I've noticed that because, well, there's two. One, there was this big dinner last year that we went to and I remember her giving the speech or something. Yeah. Or just getting up and talking and I was just yeah. kind of shocked because I, I, I knew Jen, but I didn't, you know, and the way she spoke about you. Yeah. And it was just amazing to hear her say these words and which we all knew, but, and I think you even, I could tell you were just taking it back. You don't, I don't think you love when people sit there and praise you. I yeah. don't think it's hard for you to, you know, accept. And, but then I was at your house a couple months ago and I remember just talking to the two of you Yeah, and you know, you're very hard on yourself and you'll say, well, you know, I'm like, you'll, you'll say something like, well, I'm fucking difficult on it. She's like, no, you, there's the. I think part of it is that you were just accepting of like who you are. I'm trying the best I can, but there's something in me that's, I'm not, it's not the easiest thing for me. Like you said, you're a little, you're in control when you're working and the relationships are a little tougher. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, for me, the biggest thing that I think I've learned the past couple of years is people always ask me about, you know, how do you get through writer's block when you're writing? This will come around to relationships in just a second. But, (laughs) uh, 
Uh, but of course I have to relate it to work because that's what I'm comfortable with. Anyway, <laughs> you know, I have this thing when I'm writing a screenplay or making a movie, I know, especially like when I'm writing a screenplay, I'm going to come upon a time when I feel like this is all shit. This is totally a mess. And I should just walk away. Like it's going to feel so hard. Like I'm never going to make this good. And I've learned over, you know, 20 years of writing professionally, whatever, that that's just a state of mind. Like, when you write or when you're directing a movie, you're going to get to a place where your brain goes, this is shit. This is awful. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's wrong. Doesn't really matter. The only thing you need to do is just to keep going, kind of ignore it. Let it be there. Let yourself experience, you know, yourself saying this is terrible and just kind of walk through it. Don't give up. Just keep walking. It's not that hard. It's not like you have to like make everything perfect. You just have to keep walking forward. That's it. And eventually I found that things that seem to be a problem in a screenplay, if I just walk forward, will eventually work themselves out just by taking the effort to try to move forward. Same thing when I'm in the editing room or anywhere else. Right. I haven't really done that in my relationships. <laughs> what happens is my brain goes, oh my God, this is fucked up. This is terrible. I got to get the fuck out of here. And then I get the fuck out of here. And... What I've learned is that my brain does the same thing in relationships that it does in writing. It tells me that everything is terrible and I have to leave. But instead of listening to that voice and letting that voice be in charge of me, I make my own choices for myself and I choose to just keep walking forward because my experience has been when I just walk forward, you, you, you get to something really beautiful and closer and more um, intimate. intimate on the other side. And that voice in me is the the thing in me that's trying to stop me from being a better artist. It's the thing that's trying to stop me from being a better person. It's the thing that's trying to stop me from being vulnerable and being true and putting my ass on the line, whether it's with my art or with my personal life. And so there's nothing wrong with it. That's okay. That voice can be because you can't change it. You know, it's, it's there. It's not there. It doesn't matter. But what your actions are in, you know, while you're, you're with that voice, that's what makes a professional over someone who's not a professional. You know, that's what makes somebody who becomes a successful screenwriter or a successful filmmaker or a successful actor or a successful acupuncturist over somebody who doesn't because they just keep going. The only difference is you have to write the ending to a movie. In a relationship, you just don't know what the ending is ever. So well, what's the difference? Well, I mean, you don't have to write the ending to the screenplay. Like my, my big change in my life was I had a big, you know, I've told you this before. I had a big spiritual awakening when I was young and I used to like write like the first chat. I wrote the first chapter of probably 20 novels, you know, mm -hmm. I wrote, you know, the first act of 10 screenplays that I didn't finish and I think that when I finally got that, what I needed to do to be successful was just finish whatever I started. That was a huge thing for me. Just take it to the end. Maybe it'll suck. Maybe it won't suck. But just take it to the end. Finish what you did. You know? Yeah. Relationships are trickier, obviously, because sometimes you don't want to stay, you know, because if you take that, if you're in a relationship that's an abusive relationship yes, in which yes. you're being abused, and I don't mean like physically abused, it could be physically abused, it could also be emotional abuse, or, you know, it could be somebody who's just not kind to you, which I've been in those relationships before, you know, you don't want to stick around. 
You don't want to necessarily subject yourself to that. But if you find something decent, you find something good, you find somebody who loves you and who cares about you and wants to make it work, but is imperfect, like we, like I am, yeah. you know, that's a different story. But they say, you know, it's the saying, uh, somebody said it, many people have repeated it. Uh, if someone doesn't have, you know, 20% of what you're looking for or 30%, that's okay because you leave that person and then you're looking for the 70% that they don't have because yeah, yeah, yeah. you get the 30%. There's yeah. something like that, but it's, it's true. I mean, yeah, that's it, some weird math. Uh, I'm not, I didn't say I was good at math. 70. Do you, let's get into guardians. Let's do it. All right. First of all, what hair gel do you use? Cause I really like it cause it, your hair hasn't moved a lot, but it still seems fresh and uh, it does move. I'm not kidding. When I said I woke up this morning and this is what my hair was. You woke up that good looking. I think yes. you're a good-looking guy. I yeah. told you you're one of the best-looking directors there are. First of all, when Guardians of the Galaxy came about, and you've, I'm sure you've told this story, but I didn't know what Guardians of the Galaxy was. I don't think a lot of people know. I think it was, it was a... Yeah, re- no, not many people did. I did. You, you know? did. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm a comic book guy. Of, of course. Of course. And you were reading Spider-Man and Stanley early, and this is what... How did this happen? Was it a meeting with Marvel? Just uh, somebody emailed you? No, I mean, they, they, they wanted to meet me to talk about, you know, some project. I don't think I knew what it was before I went in there. And then they pitched me on Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, it's like, I, li- I love the Guardians, but I don't know if I can see it. <laughs> Is that what happening. you said? Well, it seemed like the way they talked about it, it seemed like, you know, because there's this raccoon, right? And I love raccoons. It's one of my favorite animals. But but it seemed like it was Bugs Bunny in the middle of the Avengers, the way they talked about it. And so I was like, okay, fine. And I, I smiled and said, thank you. And right. then I got in my car to drive home. And, and I was, was, was going to pass on it. And that wasn't it. Because on the way home, all of a sudden, I said, okay, well, let's say that there really was a talking raccoon. Then how could that exist? And I saw who Rocket was in my head, who wasn't what he was at the time, which was this incredibly tortured little creature who was an animal who was turned into something more than what he was supposed to be, than what he's meant to be. And he's like Frankenstein's monster in a way. And he's just an incredibly tortured, ostracized, Flawed, flawed little character who has no connections to anyone else because there is nothing else like him out there. And at the center of guardians was this incredibly sad fact. That's where it started. That was the seed of it. And that was, that was me. I'm a rocket. You know, I feel like I'm alone. Like I don't connect other people. Well, millions of people obviously feel that way. Exactly. Right. And so then from that, it started building. I could just start to see the whole thing. I'm like, well, listen, you know, I love Star Wars so much when I was a little kid. I wouldn't want to make Star Wars. But what was it that I felt like when Star Wars came out? What kind of movie would I have to make to make people like today feel like I felt when I was a kid? And so it just started growing into this thing. And then by the time I was home, I saw the whole movie (laughs) in my head. And I went and I sat down and I typed up this 17 page document about the visuals of guardians of the galaxy and what it would be visually from a visual perspective. Cause I knew and not based on the original guardians. No, because it's about it. It was a cinematic language, not a comic language. It was about, you know, how we could bring color back to cinema. It was about how, 
You know, I love Alien. I love Blade Runner. But those movies came in. They were very dark movies. Right. And that darkness pervaded all science fiction that was supposed to be real for many years. And to be able to kind of bring back the fun of Star Wars, but of Flash Gordon and these movies that I loved as a kid and bring that back into to people's lives. And I felt like it was a whole that was missing. I, I could, I felt it very distinctly that this could be something incredibly special. And it was something that people I felt needed in their lives. Were you already at this point thinking of music? Because I know there's a soundtrack in your head. No, I didn't, I didn't think of the music till later. That really came in when I wasn't going to write the screenplay at that time. And I hadn't even read the, the initial drafts. There was a number of different writers at the beginning. I hadn't read the initial drafts, uh, at that time. Right. And, uh, it, that it, it, that came later. That came when I started to write the treatment. That that's when the music and the Walkman became a part of it. So how long after that did they read this treatment? Did they say, "Hey, we were interested in you," or did you go in again? Oh, for- that was much earlier. That was when I was wrote the when I wrote that visual thing. I flew into Wilmington and met with Kevin Feige and Lou D'Esposito, Dias- and we talked about what the movie could be. And it was shortly after that I got hired as director. So I think I was I was up against initially like six other directors, and then it right. was two, and then it was just me. Uh, anyway, that's uh, that was that was it. Was there something also? I mean, maybe this sounds stupid, but even t- something to Scooby Doo, how you worked with live action and like yeah, that was definitely. I probably had more experience working with uh, CGI than a lot of actual people. characters than almost all the people at Marvel. Um, when I was doing, I was very fortunate because when I was doing Scooby-Doo 2, the second one, uh, Chuck Roven, who produced those movies, took me and brought me to set, basically training me how to learn about visual effects and basically training me how to direct an, an, a big budget A-list film. And so I came and I started working on Scooby-Doo 2 as a producer and really learning about the technical parts of making a big-budget film. The reason he did this was because he wanted me to direct Scooby-Doo 3, which never happened. But it was it was great training, and I owe Chuck Roven a lot, of, a big debt of gratitude for that. Did you have any problems? Were there any, like, trust issues at first? Because here's this guy who's directing this huge Marvel movie. Yeah, I had a—well, there was a day on set, like, early on, when I was with the cast on Guardians 1— and people read the screenplay. Frankly, the the screenplay, even at that beginning stage, was it was not my best screenplay. And I don't think all of the actors totally got it what I was doing. And I, there was a day on set. It was me, Zoe Saldana, Chris Pratt, Dave Bautista. We're shooting, and we start to have some sort of. There was a scene that we, that was being designed, and then we were having some sort of disconnect and argument about the way things something was supposed to be done right uh dave batista easy going was getting frustrated but like i could tell but i just <laughs> kind of does it get you frazzled when you him. see other when you see other people getting a little bit like i don't know, like not trusting the situation or whatever or if there's an argument do oh, you start does it upset you it drives me crazy it drives right. me crazy because you think it's a last lack of trust or a lack of I don't give a shit if it's a lack of trust. I just want to make the movie I want to make. I don't give a shit about like I really I don't give a shit. I mean, You're, I would rather yeah. somebody trust me or like me or whatever, but that's not what's important to me while making a movie. What's important to me while making a movie is making the movie as good as it can possibly be. And the movie you want to make and the vision you have and this is what I want to do. No, it's not even that. It's making the movie as good as it can possibly be. If somebody else comes in with an idea that's better than the idea I have, I will gladly take it cuz I just want to make the best movie possible. Right. So 
Chris kind of and I got some little argument. Chris and I were already friends by that time. We kind of disagreed. But then Zoe and I were having some big disagreement. Now, Zoe and I are both very loud people. So you, was there yelling? There was yelling. And it wasn't, it wasn't, Zoe and I both come from these families where like you can do that and it's not, it's not anger really. That's, it's what, pe- more that's what I say about me if I yell loud. like I'm loud. So yes. we were yelling and people could hear it and it was like, and then finally we worked out and then we went and I got, went back and I did my thing. And it was like, oh shit, like is this going to be a constant yeah, struggle right. for me? Well, we went a couple days later to San Diego Comic-Con where we showed the first little bit of Guardians Guardians. to the audience there. This is 12 days into shooting the first movie. And I cut together the stuff. We we showed the audience what the movie was going to be. And the, the cast, which was all those guys and Benicio Del Toro, they all saw it at the same time. And they they flipped out. And Zoe comes up and she goes, I get it now. I understand what you're talking about. Yeah, and from that because point it, on, that was it for the most yeah, part. Yeah, and people don't, like, people look back now and they see that movie, but they don't understand exactly. There's a very there's a raccoon. subtle difference there's about the tone of the movie sure. and what it is and how it works. It's different. And, and, it's, and it's its own thing, and she didn't quite see what that was. That line that it, it, it walks between complete... <laughs> naturalism and totally right you know broad escapism you know it's a it's a unique balance in that way in every frame of guardians is you hear those stories you hear that um what was the movie uh rosemary's baby who's the actress uh mia farrow mia farrow and she was gonna quit and frank sinatra wants me to leave with them and i don't i i don't think i this is the right role i don't know what's and then they showed her the director shows her a scene from the movie yeah look how fucking good this is. Yeah. Yeah. She yeah. Goes, okay. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Frank. Fuck yeah. off. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, yeah. so I get it. So did you really think like, this is, did you have any idea how big this was going to be? Yeah. You did. I didn't know for sure. There were days when I woke up panicked that I was making Pluto Nash too, <laughs> but I, I, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't for the most part, I, I felt like we were doing something that needed to be. Well, I, I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a small part in it, but uh, I always thought when I when I saw the first one, how proud I was. It's I always knew what you can do. Like I was like, this guy's passion. He's very bright. He's all these things. But then when you see it on the big screen, it was just even. It's even like when the first time I saw Smallville as a pilot, I go, "What am I doing? I don't know what." The, and then I saw somebody show me something. I go, "Oh my gosh, this is big. Yeah, this is like yeah. it just it blew me away how big it was, but how original it was." Because you have these misfits, yeah. all these characters, and it just it did have that feeling of when I saw Star Wars, and I think a lot of people felt that way, which yeah. is rare, because there's so many of these these kind of movies, superhero movies, and Marvel and DC. And they, there's so many out there, yeah. And I think that this one, as great as a lot of these are, this one you can differentiate from all the others. Just be, I just the originality of it. And that's how I felt. And I think that's how a lot of people feel. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few really original directors out there. I think the thing for me is trying to bring, you know, get other people that are going to make big spectacle films that aren't just going to sell their souls. It's, it's, right. a, it's a hard thing. You know, I think there's a, a few of those people, you know, I think uh, Matthew, Matthew Vaughn is one and Matt Reeves is another. These are guys who are out there making big A-list films um, and, and, you know, kind of, really doing something unique and, and, uh, and not just giving into nonsense, you know? Yeah. 
Uh, what's something you can tell me about the next Guardians that will get you in trouble with Marvel? I never get in trouble. With but Marvel. will help this podcast. I will never. <laughs> Why would people listen to this podcast for something you're about to tell me that you might just? I, get I, I wish that there was something, Michael. You should have told me to think about that before you came, and I could have thought about something I could give away. But I, I don't think there's anything that there's I can really give away. Well, listen. You know, I, here's where I am. I've got almost all the songs chosen already. Can you name one? No, definitely, definitely not. Is, is, is it probably not the Hooters? There's no Hooters or Mike and the Mechanics, I can promise you Well, that. fuck you, Gun. Uh, there's no Bruce Hornsby. What do you, hey, don't, you could, you know what, you could throw down the range, but not Bruce. <laughs> so anyway... No, I'm the opposite. I love the range. I love the range. It's Bruce. Not Hornsby. Bruce fucked he up. He ruins all those great range songs. What was one song they sang? I don't. I don't know. Baby. Yeah, no, I don't remember. You're, you're the. You're a big I'm fan. I'm not. Of you get, I like Air Supply in Chicago. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give me something. Give me something dirty. No, I got nothing. I like. I, I've got the. So, I've got the songs all picked out. Okay. Um, I've got the treatment written. Now people think, oh, the treatment. That's just a story. Well, no, the treatment is the main part of the movie. The, the treatment is. My treatment is about 75 pages long. It's, you know, dialogue. It's every story beat. It's, it's the whole thing. So I know what's happening. Um, and uh, and it is, it's related to, you know, there are things in Avengers, that movies that happen that affect my movie, which I think right. is actually makes it kind of exciting. There's an interconnectivity between the two films. I mean, there, was, there were moments in the last one. There was obviously a big moment when um, Yondu dies. Yeah. There's uh, been, you know, there was like dramatic scenes, big moments that people didn't expect. There's big uh, fights. There's, there's all these, all these things that I think that's what's amazing about one to two is like, holy shit! Just when you thought you, you were going to see, you see something else. Yeah, are there those holy shit moments in three? Yeah, I think three is going to be different, just like two is different from one. So I think, first of all, I think of all three of the movies as a trilogy. They all are one story, like really, like Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they all lead to one thing, and it's something that I knew that it was leading to from the beginning. Um, I think that there are, you know, kind of three prime characters, and, and that's, you know, what, what we're going to follow. Kevin Smith came up to me at a Comic-Con in London. I love said, him. Rosenbaum. Well, and I said, wow, Kevin Smith knew my last name. That's kind of cool. And he says, you're coming back, right? I go, what do you mean? He goes, Martin X, uh, Stakar, those guys are coming back. They're at the fucking end credits. How could they not fucking come back? I go, dude, Stallone asked me at the premiere, hey, yo, Michael. First time he ever called me Michael. Yo, we're coming back, right? They said, that, come on, we got... I go, you're Stallone. Wouldn't you know before Rosenbaum would know this? I don't, I don't have any answers. And I don't... I always say, James is one of my best friends. I don't give a fuck. I'm not talking to him about that stuff. If you want whatever. So what I will say this. Is there a chance... Is there a decent chance that Stakar and Martin X and these old Guardians, the originals, might come back? In three or in or general? In, in general. Decent. I think it's a very big, 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 big chance. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't you know, help to create those characters for the screen just to have them never be seen again. Those are great characters. Really? And I want to work with Sly. Oh, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Listen, what? I mean, wait, you wait, know wait, wait, I'm wait. like, what? He says you want to work with Sly. What about... Your buddy. I want to work with Sly. How about your buddy? I want to work with Michelle Yeoh. <laughs> Michelle Yeoh? How about Michelle Yosenbaum? I want to work with Krugar <laughs> and Miley Cyrus. Craglin. Yes. And Ving Rhames. Yeah. Those guys are people yeah, those I want to work are. with. By the way, on the set, we did have fun. And I remember one day specifically that we're there and 
Stallone starts singing the shitty 70s songs yeah. with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember looking at you and you go, fuck. He finally found someone who likes the same shitty That's music. Right. That's and we're right. singing and it's a blast. And Sly's singing like the first Blood song. He's like, it's a long way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was just... You well, s- I can listen to this. I got to sit with uh, Sly at his house. Right. And we watched Rambo together. And he gave me live action commentary on the film. Wait a minute. Throughout the whole film? Throughout the whole movie. Can, explain to me. He was showing me uh, something on his TV, what, how his TV works. Because he's got this massive, like, incredibly expensive TV that's in his, his uh, smoking room. And so we're watching this TV, and he's showing me the, the – the, and I see on the DVR, I said, oh, Rambo's on there. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, really? And then he just played like Rambo, and then we're watching a minute of Rambo. He's just kind of talking about the beginning of it. And he's like, yeah, I'm boring you. I'll, I'll stop. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Please don't keep stop. doing this. Keep going. So, what was it like, though? Was it like, like uh, in this scene right here, I remember the day like, they yeah. brought this fucking guy. Oh, like, everything. In the choreography. Yeah, yeah. I almost yeah. broke but my fucking But a lot of it also back. was communicating about filmmaking. Like, you know, Sly is a he's guy. He's brilliant. He's a bright, bright he, guy. And he loves making movies. Yeah. So he's, you know, we were talking a lot about just our process of what we do is as filmmakers and how we go through it about the things that bother us and the things that don't bother us and all of that stuff so that was like really it was a really great experience but it's also great to have somebody like sly who is sort of a mentor to me who's been through all of it yeah and you know and, and talks talks to me about that kind of stuff like it's nice to have that i you know it's 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 uh it's it's cool i remember just being on set. How long is this podcast? It was just so interesting. How long, an hour what and a half. What is it like? How long have we been doing this? An hour and a half. No, you're kidding me. Oh, Jesus well, Christ. But that's how fun it was. It was. I was bored. You were having... I saw. I know when you're bored and you start to zone away and you, for the most part, you've been... It's been engaging and fun. I don't zone away when I'm on a podcast. I just... I just power through. But yeah, uh, I've got 16 text messages. From who? Get one from Sly. Hey, James. What? Hey, let me talk to you. I want to Rambo 3. I want to do the commentary for Rambo 3. Come oh, over some here. Crazy political. Hey, we're going to do Cliffhanger. Hang on. I want to talk about Cliffhanger. Come on. Here. Hey, Jim. Jimmy, oh, I'm coming God. over. All right, listen. Hey. Okay. Listen to me. I love you dearly. Um, I love you too. Listen, this has been a real treat. I love that I actually came to your house. I, I enjoyed every minute of this. I, I was a little nervous because I, you know, when I talk to my friends, I always say this, but I get, you know, because, you know, it's, who knows? It's I'm, like very intimi- I'm very intimidating. You're you're just the opposite. You're very engaging, and you're an amazing human being. I love how you your love for animals and your friends and uh, your craft. I do. I love the shit out of you. I got a pee. I love you. Thanks for being. Thanks for allowing me to be inside of you. <laughs> okay. Great. Can you say thank you for having me inside? No. You don't want to do that. People usually do that. <laughs> don't do that. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.